This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 161st edition of the program. Today is September 27th, and before we get into the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which signed up just this last week to support us. And that includes Amanda Jovia, Colin, Elizabeth Luna, John Henry Berevosco, John Dorsey, Kelly Johnson, Rick Booker, Roland Vargas, and Yahia Soridi. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report so on today's episode we'll continue our coverage of brett kavanaugh and how he is refusing to withdraw his nomination in spite of national outrage and additionally when it comes to kavanaugh we'll talk about how cnn inadvertently assisted him with a panel stacked with gop operatives and also in this episode i'll give you the breakdown of the debate between beto o'rourke and ted cruz i'll tell you who i think won Also, Ted Cruz was heckled at a restaurant in D.C. with his wife over the Kavanaugh vote. Bill Maher and a Washington Post journalist, along with a panel of other progressives, attacked Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. Code Pink's Medea Benjamin protested Donald Trump's administration's warmongering against Iran. Diamond and Silk argue that Burton and Ernie being gay is not okay. A CNN panel of female Trump supporters make it clear that religious pandering works. Trump cuts cancer research funding in order to pay for more immigrant children detention centers. Jake Tapper is seemingly uninterested when it comes to how the government will pay for the recent $17 billion military budget increase. And another CNN political hack attacked Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez over her Medicare for All plan. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today's show. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. No guests still. Hopefully that will re- that will return in October. But for the most part, I hope you enjoy the show nonetheless because it should be a pretty solid episode. So let's go ahead and get into it. The very first debate between Beto O'Rourke and the MILF porn-loving, tonsil-stone-eating Texas Senator Ted Cruz took place, and it was certainly interesting, and I wanted to give you guys my analysis of the event, but before I even get to any of the substance, I do have to preface this video by saying it's very difficult for me to be objective here, and I am tempted to declare Beto O'Rourke the winner, but I don't know if that's just because... I hate Ted Cruz so much. (laughs) Impartiality is going to be very difficult because Ted Cruz is such a loathsome, fake individual that it's difficult to try to see past that. But with that being said, I'm going to try to do my best and trying to remove myself from the bias. But Beto O'Rourke maybe had a slight edge over Ted Cruz. And I'm going to get to some specific instances here that I found the most interesting. But just generally speaking... 
I think that Beto had the most viral moments throughout the course of the debate, but I think he failed to put Ted Cruz on the defensive for the entirety of the debate, unlike Cynthia Nixon, who challenged Andrew Cuomo in New York's gubernatorial primary, and at the debate, she had him defending himself for the entirety of that debate. But in this situation, I think that Beto O'Rourke, even though he kind of kept Ted Cruz on his toes, Ted Cruz also had Beto O'Rourke on the defensive as well. So I think that they both played offense and defense probably equally throughout the course of the debate. And one thing that I noticed, however, is that Ted Cruz tried to spin Beto's positives into negatives. But Beto O'Rourke was very well versed in policy. So I think that he rebutted a lot of Ted Cruz's attacks on him. Now, both of them kind of irritated me. I don't think it's possible for anyone to irritate me as much as Ted Cruz, but they both came off as very rehearsed, scripted, focus group driven politicians. And I just, I don't understand why that's the case in 2018 when Donald Trump is president. Just be real. I mean, you had Beto O'Rourke doing that politician point when he talks. Normal people don't talk like that. Whenever you see someone pointing like this and talking, it's either a Republican or a Democrat. Only politicians do this, and it's it's the fakest thing in the world. Fakest thing ever. So stop doing that, Beto. And I understand that that is the dumbest complaint that I have, but it just it, it's grating on my nerves and I can't handle it. So <laughs> for that reason alone, I think that they both are equally... <sighs> Focus group driven and strategic minded politicians, of course, nobody can possibly be as fake as Ted Cruz, but Beto certainly, he has his issues, right? He has his issues. He's not 100% progressive. He has not assured voters that he will sign on to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill in the event he is elected. He hasn't co-sponsored HR 676, so he hasn't passed a lot of progressive litmus tests just yet, and I've previously kind of put him in the same category as Elizabeth Warren, being somewhat progressive, but not as progressive as Bernie Sanders. And I think I'd even put him a step below Elizabeth Warren, specifically because of the Medicare for All issues. So there are issues that I have with Beto O'Rourke. But with that being said, I don't think he did a bad job here. And, you know, I think that they both kind of held their own. But I don't know if Beto moved the needle enough, which is really what you wanted. You wanted him to destroy Ted Cruz in this debate, and I just don't necessarily think that that happened. However, Ted Cruz, I think it's very likely that he came off as an obvious liar in certain portions here, because he had positions that were just indefensible. So as many of you seen on Twitter prior to the debate, Ted Cruz posted a video with a comment saying, in Beto O'Rourke's own words... And many people, myself included, were wondering what was controversial about what Beto said here because he was giving a phenomenal speech about racial injustice and police brutality against unarmed black Americans, and the crowd was overwhelmingly on his side. So many people pointed out that this seemed like an advertisement for Beto O'Rourke. So I genuinely couldn't figure out what Ted Cruz's objection was here. He was talking about, about Botham John. Um, but we got some insight as to why Ted Cruz didn't like what Beto was saying here. And this is one of many examples during the debate that show that Ted Cruz has positions that are just downright indefensible. What happened to Mr. John was horrific. Nobody should be in their own home and be shot and killed in their own home. It was tragic. Now, the officer, as I understand it, has contended that it was a tragic mistake. It was a case where she thought she was in her own apartment. She thought he was an intruder. Right now, today, 
I don't know what happened that evening. Congressman O'Rourke doesn't know what happened that evening. But he immediately called for firing the officer. I think that's a mistake. Look, we have a criminal justice system, a criminal justice system that will determine what happened that night. If she violated the law, if she did that intentionally, she'll face the consequences. But without knowing the facts before a trial, before a jury's heard the evidence, Congressman O'Rourke is ready to convict her, ready to fire her. So notice what Ted Cruz is doing here. He is moving the goalpost because in saying that Amber should be fired, well, Ted Cruz is conflating that to Beto O'Rourke being against this police officer's due process rights. But Beto isn't saying she should be thrown in jail for the rest of her life. He's saying that she should be fired, which is a conclusion that any reasonable person would come to even if you accept the officer's version of what happened because if an officer is too stupid to identify her own apartment and ends up killing someone as a result of her own stupidity then clearly she's not capable of wielding a deadly weapon nor is she capable of responsibly policing a community that she's supposed to protect and look out for and she was fired does that mean that her due process rights were violated well let me ask you this in the event your employer wanted to fire you would they Put you before a trial of a judge and a jury of your peers and have this entire process before they fire you? Of course not. They just fire you. So what Ted Cruz is doing here is falsely accusing Beto O'Rourke of being against her due process rights when that's not true. And by saying this, he's inadvertently promoting this idea that police officers are above the law. And he demonstrated that he has no regard for unarmed black Americans that are killed by police officers in this country with impunity because when he was asked about the statistical reality of black Americans dying more so at the hands of cops than white Americans, he dodged the question. Now, Ted Cruz went on to imply that even suggesting that this statistical reality is true is harmful, and this led to a pretty heated moment during the debate. That rhetoric does damage. That rhetoric divides us on race. It inflames hatred. We should be bringing people together instead of okay. suggesting the police are risking their lives to protect all of us, to protect African Americans, to protect time. Hispanics. And turning people against the police, Senator, I please, think, is profoundly this, irresponsible. This is why people don't like Washington, D.C. You just said something that I did not say. And what did you not say? attributed it to me. What did you not I, say? I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna repeat, I'm not going to repeat the slander so, so, so and the mischaracterization. I'm not going to repeat the slander You're not and say mischaracterization. What you did say? No, th this, this is your trick in the trade. <laughs> to, to, to confuse and to incite based on fear and not to speak the truth. This is a very serious issue and it warrants the truth and the facts. All right, sit. Now, I think that Beto had the right instinct to call Ted Cruz out for lying and trying to basically mislead people about what Beto said. However, he states, I'm not going to repeat the slander or mischaracterization. Well, why not? It would have been more impactful to the audience if you actually bring up that specific thing you said and compare it with what Ted Cruz said and how he characterized it and show that he's a liar because we all know he's a bullshitter. So you had an opportunity to prove that he's lying or being intentionally deceitful and you chose not to do that. I, I don't I don't get that. So I'm glad that Beto O'Rourke felt the need to call that out because that's that's the right thing to do but i mean you take it a step further and you actually demonstrate exactly how ted cruz is a liar and how he plays loose with the facts so i don't understand why beto didn't capitalize on that opportunity he was given in this debate it would have been huge for him so in my opinion that was a missed opportunity on beto's part 
And the subject of protests during the national anthem came up, and Ted Cruz put his hypocrisy on full display, and I just don't think that Beto was forceful enough in calling out Ted Cruz's hypocrisy here. And that's one of the reasons I'm proud to be a member of the party of Lincoln, a member that stands for equal rights for everyone, regardless of what race, what ethnicity, every human being is a creation of God that our constitution protects. But nowhere in his answer did he address the fact that when you have people during the national anthem taking a knee, refusing to stand for the national anthem, that you're disrespecting the millions of veterans, the millions of soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines that risk and fight and die to protect that flag and to protect our liberty. And to be clear, everyone has a right to protest. You have a right to speak. But you could speak in a way that doesn't disrespect the flag, that doesn't disrespect the national anthem. And I'll tell you, those civil rights protesters would be astonished if the protests were manifesting and burning the flag. Dr. King, that's not something Dr. King stood for. He stood Senator for justice Cruz. without disrespecting the men and women who fight for this country. Senator Cruz. You, you heard Senator Cruz's answer. First of all, he again tried to mislead you by taking a peaceful protest during the national anthem to burning a flag. No one here, myself included, has suggested that anyone should be doing that. He also grounded his answer in partisanship, talking about the GOP being better than the Democrats. Listen, I could care less about either party at this moment. At this deeply divided, highly polarized time in our history, this moment calls for all of us, regardless of party or any other difference, of race or sexual orientation, how many generations you've been here, or whether you just got here yesterday, we need to come together for this country that we love so much. So in that clip, Ted Cruz gave Beto a huge gift. I'm proud to be a member of the party of Lincoln, a member that stands for equal rights for everyone. He literally said with a straight face in front of everyone on that debate stage that the Republican Party is the party of equal rights. He said that he's in favor of equal rights. <laughs> <laughs> At that moment is where if I were Beto, I would just unleash on Ted Cruz. I'd ask him why he's against transgender people using the bathroom of their choice why is he against marriage equality why does he believe it's acceptable for employers to fire people just for being gay why doesn't he care that black americans are being killed by police officers with impunity at a higher rate than white americans why is his party rolling back voter rights across the country why is his party restricting women's access to safe abortions why are they rolling back workers rights and killing unions across the country i mean this party is quite literally against equal rights and you don't even have to list off all of the ways the GOP and Ted Cruz himself are completely discriminatory against marginalized communities, you just simply ask Ted Cruz to name policies where him and the GOP actually support equal rights, and you'd get them. It'd be a gotcha question because he wouldn't be able to list off anything that's meaning meaningful or convincing. Of course, he's against equal rights. It's not like he's even ambivalent towards the idea of equality. He's hostile towards it. And something else that Ted Cruz said really gave Beto another opportunity. Ted Cruz also said, when you have people during the national anthem taking a knee, refusing to stand for the national anthem, you're disrespecting the millions of veterans. And he later said, you have a right to speak, but you can speak in a way that doesn't disrespect the flag, that doesn't disrespect the national anthem. Right here, you call out his hypocrisy because Ted Cruz himself is an individual who has used the term 
snowflake to describe portions of the left, which implies that they're too politically correct, they're too sensitive, they get outraged over meaningless things. And as someone who's spoken out against political correctness, why is Ted Cruz trying to force his political correctness on all of us? But instead, Beto ended up pivoting to platitudes and called for unity instead which i don't i don't know what he thought that would accomplish now he was correct to point out how ted cruz was being misleading seeing that he equated protests during the national anthem to flag burning which was obviously not what the conversation was about but being against flag burning is also a very politically correct thing you're against a piece of material being burned really why are you being such a snowflake i mean how do you not hit him on this hypocrisy if you're beto so i don't I don't know why Beto didn't jump on him in this opportunity. I think, again, it was another missed opportunity. But I do want to get onto a different subject because Ted Cruz was talking about school shootings. The subject came up and he hypothesized why he believes school shootings are happening. And watch how cringeworthy it is as he tries to convince us that he actually gives a damn at all about the students who are killed in these shootings. You know, all of us have been horrified as we've seen these school shootings. Santa Fe High School is about a half hour from my house. I was home that morning at 7.30 in the morning when the shooting happened. I jumped in a truck and headed down there. I spent the entire time at Santa Fe High School, that entire day with students, with teachers, with first responders, with parents. It is horrific. And let me say, as the father of two daughters, there is something deeply wrong that we have these shootings. There are a lot of things behind it that have nothing to do with government. They have things to do with, with, with things like removing God from the public square, like losing the moral foundation of, 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 of much of our society, like losing the, the binds of community and family. Okay, so that is literally probably one of the dumbest things that I've ever heard Ted Cruz say. And, you know, the bar is low. He said a lot of really idiotic things, but... His contention here is that more guns don't equal more gun deaths, less God actually equals more gun deaths. So in the event we brought back God into the public sphere, in other words, shove religion down people's throats, well then there'd just be less shootings. So other countries, like France, who have a laicite system, which puts government above God, who... Generally speaking, they're against religion both politically and socially. They must have more shootings there, right? Well, when you look at this graphic from Vox, you'll see that the United States actually has the highest amount of guns and the highest amount of gun deaths per 100,000 people when compared with all other countries in the developed world, and that includes France, a country very much against religion. But I thought that Ted Cruz said more God equals less gun violence. It's almost as if fairy tales about God and superstition doesn't have any impact, and Ted Cruz himself, being a beneficiary of campaign contributions from the NRA, who lobbies against any sort of gun regulation whatsoever, has an agenda to push because that agenda benefits his career. It helps him get elected with these campaign contributions. And when I mentioned at the beginning of this video that Ted Cruz tries to take positives of Beto O'Rourke and spin them into, ne into negatives, I have a clip to really demonstrate that in action because Beto is against the war on drugs. And about nine years ago, he was open to the idea of debating whether or not legalizing all drugs is a good policy idea. Now, Ted Cruz put Beto in this position where he had to prove that 
he wasn't in favor of something that was actually very reasonable. Yes, I want to end the war on drugs and specifically want to end the prohibition on marijuana. And Grover, let me point out, he didn't dispute that as nine years ago as an elected member of the El Paso City Council, he introduced and advocated for energetically debating ending the prohibition on all narcotics, on everything. He says he doesn't agree with that now, but that was only nine years ago. And I'll tell you when it comes to this, this is an issue that's personal to me. My, my older sister, Miriam, died of a drug overdose. People all across the state of Texas, 70,000 people a year are dying of drug overdoses in this country. We have an opioid crisis. And I think talking about legalizing all narcotics, I, I think that is profoundly uh, dangerous and, it, and it, it doesn't represent the interest of Texans. So, first of all, Wanting to debate whether or not we should legalize all drugs is not unreasonable. Not wanting to debate that is actually the unreasonable position here. But he talked about why this issue is so close to his heart. It's because he had a sister that actually died of an overdose, right? And that's very sad. However, David Dole of The Rational National did a little bit of digging and found out that Ted Cruz is actually lying about his own sister's death here. She did not die of an overdose. She mixed two prescription drugs together that she was taking for actual issues that she had, and that's how she died. So I'll provide you with a link to that video because you, you have to see the whole thing because even though most of us watching this already loathe Ted Cruz, you'll see him in a completely different light than before because this is just a new level of loathsome. And this isn't David's opinion. He extensively researched this in that video. And you'll see that Ted Cruz literally exploits his own sister's death to score some cheap political points. This is an issue that's personal to me. And the Oscar goes to... Ted Cruz, me! He's got to be the worst actor ever. This is an individual who is literally lying about his own sister's death and trying to exploit that situation for purposes of political expediency. This is the behavior of a sociopath. This is not normal. Normal people don't do things like that. That's a new low, even for Ted Cruz. And I keep saying that, but he keeps lowering the bar. And that's shocking even for Ted Cruz. So I don't even know what to say about that. Shame on Ted Cruz, but I don't think shaming him <laughs> it's enough. I mean, wow. Wow. Exploiting your own sister's death. That is, that's got to be a new record in politics, right? I know that American politics currently is incredibly stupid, but that's something that I just didn't think I'd see. Unbelievable. Now, Ted Cruz, I mean, if I went through each lie that he said during this debate, we'd be here forever. But I do want to highlight an instance where he tried to gaslight the people of Texas. We can protect pre-existing conditions, and you, and you need to understand, everyone agrees we're going to protect pre-existing conditions. But we also need more choices, more competition, more options, so that prices drop, so that young people coming out of SMU or coming out of schools across this country can afford health insurance instead of facing the disaster that Obamacare has done to our health care system. And that's your time, Senator. Representative? I don't know how you're going to repeal every single word of the Affordable Care Act and keep protections for pre-existing conditions. So that was a great point made by Beto at the end there. But Ted Cruz, I mean, 
the way he said that, he was so confident in lying. But it was a lie, regardless if he makes it really believable. I mean, he may be a, wor- a really bad actor, like the worst actor ever, when he's trying to pretend to be sad about things. But when he spews this nonsensical bullshit, I think it's probably persuasive to people who aren't well-versed in politics. So he states that people with pre-existing conditions should still be able to obtain healthcare. Now, remember that language specifically. He still thinks that they should be able to obtain healthcare. Well, as Dylan Scott of Vox explains in an article from late August, Texas joined several other states along with Trump's Justice Department in a lawsuit that, if won, would invalidate the ACA's protections for people with pre-existing conditions. And Texas specifically is arguing that the entirety of the ACA should in fact be overturned. Now, since the GOP can't convince anyone that they actually care about people with pre-existing conditions so long as they're trying to undo protections for them, they decided to craft a bill that ostensibly stops discrimination against people with pre-existing conditions. However, there's something really important that they're leaving out with that bill. There's something really important that Ted Cruz is not telling people in Texas. So even if it's the case that they have this bill that stops insurance providers from discriminating against people that have pre-existing conditions, even if they are able to get insurance if they have pre-existing conditions, their bill has a loophole so that those healthcare companies don't actually have to treat patients for that particular pre-existing condition. So when Ted Cruz tells you that he's with you here... He's gaslighting you. He's saying that he wants to protect pre-existing conditions because that's popular, when in actuality, he's allowing these healthcare companies, since he's bankrolled by them, to not treat people with pre-existing conditions. Do you see what he's doing here? It's a bait and switch, and he's gaslighting people. It's despicable. So, by and large, this was a pretty difficult task for Beto, and I think that if you're challenging an incumbent with the advantage... You've got to do everything in your power to move the needle and really have an outstanding performance. And I do believe that Beto held his own. And I want to make it clear that if you want to go up against someone like Ted Cruz and beat him, you have to be a populist. And the way that you do that is by demonstrating to voters that Ted Cruz is corrupt. He's not representing the people of Texas because he is bought off by special interests, he's corrupt, and he's not looking out for them. He's an opportunist he's lo- who's looking out for his own political career. And there, there were some moments where I believe Beto was extremely successful at driving that point home. You know, only one of us has been to each county in Texas and would have an idea of what Texas values and interests are. Within months of being sworn to serve as your senator, Ted Cruz was not in Texas, he was in Iowa. He visited every single one of the 99 counties of Iowa. He went to New Hampshire, he went to South Carolina, he went to the Republican presidential primary states instead of being here. He shut down your government for 16 days in 2013 because that too many people were getting too much health care in the United States of America. And in 2015, he missed one quarter of the votes in the United, St- in the United States Senate. In 2016, he missed one half of the votes in the United States Senate. You tell me who can miss half the days at work and then be rehired for the same job going forward. That's not what Texans want. They don't want somebody who's captured by corporations and political action committees and special interests because that's where Ted Cruz gets his money. Our campaign is the largest grassroots campaign this state has ever seen funded by people and only people in every single one of the counties of Texas every single day. 
generations from now, people looking back at this moment will not be able to believe that a country $21 trillion in debt with the greatest levels of income disparity that we've seen since the last Gilded Age of more than 100 years ago would find as its solution to the problem $2 trillion in tax breaks that disproportionately flow to corporations that are already sitting on record piles of cash and the already wealthy in this country. A tax bill written by the lobbyists for those very corporations. In fact, in one draft, in the margins, written by those lobbyists so that their corporate bosses could see the text before the senators could vote on it. And in the days before and just after Senator Cruz voted for this massive giveaway to the already wealthy, he received more than $120,000 from the political action committees that represent those who benefited from these tax breaks. I believe not in investing in corporations and in special interests. I believe in investing in people, in universal pre-K for every child so everyone has the same starting line in life, in health care for every Texan and every American so they're well enough to be their best, the ability to attend community college or SMU so that you can better yourself and do better for everyone else in your life, in your community, and in this country. I believe in investing in broadband internet and the 50% of rural Texas that today cannot reliably get online. I believe in investing in communities and in time. people, not in corporations, special interests, and political action committees. So that, to me, was the highlight of this entire debate. And that clip alone kind of leads me to kind of side with the idea that Beto probably won because it's that clip that went viral. Ted Cruz didn't really have any bright moments like this that got a lot of attention, whereas Beto did. And he made some excellent points. He brought up the government shutdown. He talked about how Ted Cruz is corrupt. He's controlled by special interests. Um, he also sprinkled in some populist policies of his own about universal pre-K and whatnot. So that is what Beto probably should have driven home for the entirety of the debate, but at the same time, Ted Cruz was pretty good at keeping Beto on his toes as well, so I mean, he lies so much that I think people are probably inclined to believe him. He came in second in the presidential election in 2016, so I mean, this is someone who is persuasive to average political viewers, so... I don't necessarily know if Beto won, but I'm inclined to think that he did win. However, I don't know if my bias against Ted Cruz is just making me blind to their objective, uh, to the objective performances that they both gave. But I think that it was relatively equal with Ted Cruz kind of losing a little bit. So at the end of the day, that's my take on it. Um, I'd be curious to know what you all feel about this debate as well. Leave your comments down below because I think that... Beto, you know, I wasn't as impressed with his performance as I thought I would be. I think he came off as just way too rehearsed and too standard politician-y, with the point especially. But, I mean, he didn't do a terrible job, so I don't, I don't know. But certainly, I will be curious to know how the next two debates pan out, because they have three in total. This was the first of three. So, you know, we'll see. But either way, I hope that Beto beats Ted Cruz, because, I mean... <laughs> Ted Cruz is the most hateable person in Congress, perhaps in the history of American politics. He's just, he's that unlikable. A second woman has now come forward accusing Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault. And this time, it's a woman named Deborah Ramirez. And according to Nick Visser of HuffPost, 
Deborah Ramirez, 53, told the New Yorkers Ronan Farrow and Jane Meyer that she was at a dorm room party with Kavanaugh and several other students during Yale's 1983-1984 to school year. Ramirez said the group was playing a drinking game and she became inebriated. Later in the evening, she was on the floor and remembered a penis being in front of her face before she pushed the person away, causing her to touch it. She said she recalled Kavanaugh standing next to her laughing and pulling up his pants. Another student then yelled down the hall, Brett Kavanaugh just put his penis in Debbie's face. She noted that there are large gaps in her memory and said she was hesitant to come forward, afraid that she would be attacked because she had been drinking at the time. But Ramirez said her experience, along with that of Christine Blasey Ford, would warrant an FBI investigation into the nominee's behavior. Kavanaugh denied the claims in a statement to the outlet, saying the event from 35 years ago did not happen. The people who knew me then know that this did not happen and have said so. This is a smear, plain and simple. Now, because she admits that she was inebriated and because she admits that there are gaps in her memory, Republicans are calling bullshit on these allegations, and as a result, they scheduled to vote to confirm Kavanaugh on Friday anyway. However, as of today, a third woman has now come forward named Julie Swetnick, who alleges that Kavanaugh and his friends actually attempted to spike the drinks of girls at high school parties in the 1980s in an attempt to to rape them. Now, these allegations are detailed in an affidavit which carries the penalty of perjury, so obviously this is very, very serious, and to nobody's surprise, Kavanaugh is also denying these allegations, likening them to something that we'd see from the Twilight Zone series. Now, since Swetnick's lawyer is Michael Avenetti, this caused Donald Trump to take to Twitter to attack him, saying, Avenatti is a third-rate lawyer who is good at making false accusations like he did on me and like he is now doing on Judge Brett Kavanaugh. He is just looking for attention and doesn't want people to look at his past record and relationships, a total lowlife. Now, President Trump then held a news conference where he claims that hearing the testimony from Kavanaugh accusers could potentially cause him to change his mind on Kavanaugh, but he still defended Kavanaugh, and he called these accusations a big fat con job and insisted that an investigation by the FBI was unnecessary since they've already vetted him before. Now, if you really do believe that these allegations amount to nothing more than a big fat con job, then that's all the more reason that you'd want the FBI to look into them. But nonetheless, Donald Trump is maintaining that he is not in favor of an FBI investigation. Now, as far as we know, the vote is still slated for Friday, which is completely unacceptable because not only do senators not have time to even digest the new allegations that surfaced more recently from Swetnick, but at the rate we're going, it wouldn't be surprising if even more women came forward, given the evidence that we're seeing from people who knew Kavanaugh at that time, like his college roommate who claimed that he wouldn't be surprised if the allegations that came up from Deborah Ramirez were in fact true. Now, since the vote should obviously be canceled at this point, I don't even think that's debatable for reasonable people or delayed at a bare minimum, but cancellation is certainly the goal. Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley filed for an injunction in order to stop the vote from taking place on Friday, and chances are Republicans are probably going to try to fight that and push it through anyway this Friday before any more allegations surface. So at this point, I don't know 
why Republicans would even waste political capital on Brett Kavanaugh. There are plenty of other right-wing goons that would probably do the party's bidding just as much, if not more, as Brett Kavanaugh. So the fact that they continue to waste political capital on what is obviously a horrible choice is political suicide at this point, especially before the 2018 midterm elections. Now, as the allegations against Kavanaugh mount, so too does national outrage. And Common Dreams reports that survivors of sexual assault flooded Capitol Hill and 35 women were arrested outside of Susan Collins' office, who, as we all know, is probably going to be a swing vote here. And Women's March organizers also told Jeff Flake to vote no, asking him if he wants to go down in history as a rape apologist, or at least that was the message that they wanted to convey to him. And also members of Ultraviolet showed up. So the case against Kavanaugh is quickly growing. You have multiple accusers now accusing him of sexual assault and alleged rape, which is very serious. You have national outrage festering. And that's aside from his dismal record. I mean, this is an individual who is constitutionally illiterate because he has absolutely no regard for the Fourth Amendment, which means he's not qualified to be on the Supreme Court. So if he's confirmed, I have no doubt that the Supreme Court would take another massive legitimacy hit. So the question is, at what point is he going to withdraw his nomination and say, enough is enough? Clearly, the American people don't want me here. There's multiple women that have come forward. When is he going to withdraw his nomination? Well, in an interview with the Republican Party propaganda network, Fox News, he remained defiant and said he's not going anywhere. Did you guys ever look at each other and say, I'm out. This is enough. This is just isn't worth it. I'm not going to let false accusations drive us out of this process. And um, you know, we're looking for a fair process where I can be heard and defend the, my integrity, my lifelong record, my lifelong record of promoting dignity and equality for women, starting with the, the women who knew me when I was 14 years old. I'm not going anywhere. Well, you should, and quite frankly, you should be impeached from your current position as a judge once you're not confirmed to the Supreme Court, because anyone who brazenly disregards one whole amendment of the Constitution, like the Fourth Amendment, they have no business deciding on precedent that affects millions of Americans. This is an individual that should be nowhere near the Constitution and certainly should not be deciding on cases in the highest court in this country. He's a disgrace. And last week, I really made a strong case for people to call not just for him to be delayed, but for his nomination to be withdrawn altogether. And I am glad to know that more people are joining me in calling for this scumbag to withdraw his nomination and to put pressure on Trump to withdraw this nomination and pick someone else because I'm not convinced we're going to end up in a better situation with someone else. But I mean, this is what Democrats need to do. They need to do everything in their power to stall, to obstruct, because again, this party stole a Supreme Court seat away from Obama. So you don't ever give them anything. You vote no, you delay, you obstruct, you do everything in your power to throw a wrench 
in their plans because this is completely unacceptable. So I'm glad more people are joining me and calling on a cancellation of this vote. And amid all of these allegations, this is certainly starting to hurt Republicans because they're smearing Kavanaugh's accusers. And in doing so, they're showing that they don't care about women. They don't believe women. And this is a very dangerous game to be playing before the midterms when they already don't have much political capital to spend. So he shouldn't be confirmed even if we didn't have these two women come forward and accuse him of sexual assault. But now with them coming forward, he certainly absolutely should not be confirmed. And if he is confirmed, then that's just disgusting. And the legitimacy of the Supreme Court will be forever damaged so long as he's there because, I mean, this guy should be nowhere near the Constitution. We need individuals who will be objective and interpret the Constitution, not be political partisan hacks and just rule in a way that would appease the Republican Party. And that's exactly what this scumbag would do. Texas's MILF porn-loving, tonsil-stone-eating Senator Ted Cruz was having dinner at a really fancy and expensive restaurant with his wife in Washington, D.C., called Fiola, until he was interrupted by protesters who had a very clear message for him. Vote no on Kavanaugh. We believe survivors! We believe survivors! We believe survivors! We believe survivors! Beto is way hotter than you do! We believe survivors! We believe survivors! We believe survivors! God bless you! Excuse me, let my wife through. We believe survivors! 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 The premises. This is a private thing. How many of you disappoint Kavanaugh? Ted Cruz and Brett Kavanaugh are best friends. Vote no on Kavanaugh. Vote no on Kavanaugh. Cancel Kavanaugh for women's rights, for rights of every marginalized community. You mean cut a I am someone who loves these types of incidents. And, you know, if this were a normal Trump supporter, you know, an ordinary citizen, I would be against it. But since this is a public official who has an incredible amount of influence over policy that affects all of our lives, I'm all for it. This falls under the category of protest. And I always have to specify that because whenever I talk about these types of disruptions, be it with, you know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders at the Red Hen or Stephen Miller or Kirsten Nielsen, people always get angry with me and say that I am greenlighting this type of harassment against ordinary Trump supporters, but I've never made that assertion at all. This is a protest. These are politicians, Ted Cruz in particular, that won't pick up his phones. He doesn't return calls of his constituents. He won't return emails. So voters have no choice but to disrupt these types of individuals in their private lives. And if you're going to shed a tear for someone like Ted Cruz as he fights to strip away healthcare and advocates for war and aims to marginalize already vulnerable communities, then I think you're being duped. I don't feel bad for this prick. This is a protest that isn't just legitimate, but it's necessary at a time when this party is in control of all three branches of government and they are destroying this country. Trump has appointed more federal judges than I think anyone else 
uh, at least in modern history, at this point in his presidency. Ted Cruz is supporting the most egregious policies that fucks over the working class. I don't feel bad for him if one of his meals at this fancy restaurant was interrupted by protesters. He wouldn't listen to them, you know, in under normal circumstances when they call his office or protest, so they've got to hit him in his private life. If you're a public servant, you serve us at all times. We fund your tax dollars. We paid for that meal, Ted. So if you don't want to listen to us during business hours, we're going to hit you with these types of protests after hours when you're off the clock. Because when you're a public servant, you're never really off the clock. And I don't feel bad for Ted, but I do feel bad for his wife, kind of, not only because she's married to Ted Cruz, but also because she probably, you know, being married to Ted Cruz doesn't have many perks, but one of them is maybe just going out to dinner. So I do feel bad for her because she's kind of an innocent bystander in this, but unfortunately, Ted Cruz, if he's not going to listen to people, this is how you've got to reach out to politicians, unfortunately. You know, I'd love for them to be responsive to constituents, but right now, this is a fight for our lives. If Kavanaugh is confirmed, that would be an absolute disaster. So we need to let every single politician know voting for Kavanaugh is completely unacceptable. And if we have to do that while they're having dinner at a fancy, expensive restaurant, then so be it. So I thought this was great. And to the individual who made the comment about Beto O'Rourke being hotter than Ted Cruz and to the woman flipping him off, I tip my hat to you guys because that was absolutely amazing. CNN wanted to gauge how women in Florida feel about the sexual misconduct allegations against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. So they put together a panel in Florida of Republican women, and this is how that went. A show of hands, how many of you believe Judge Kavanaugh when he says this didn't happen? I believe him. I believe him. I do, I I do believe him. I, I believe him. How can right. we believe the word of a woman or something that happened 36 years ago when this guy has an impeccable reputation. There was nobody, nobody that has spoken ill will about him. Everyone that speaks about him, this guy's an altar boy, you know, a scout. He's, you know, because one woman made an allegation. Sorry, I don't buy it. But in the grand scheme of things, my goodness, you, there was no intercourse. There was maybe a touch. Can we really? 36 <laughs> years later, she's no still stuck on that? Result. Had it happened? I mean, we're talking about a 15-year-old girl, which I respect. You know, I'm a woman, I respect. We're talking about a 17-year-old boy in high school with testosterone running high. Tell me what boy hasn't done this in high school. Please, I would like to know. Why would she come forward if this wasn't true? Because it has basically destroyed her family. She's had to move, she's gone undercover, she's gotten death threats. Um, so if she's lying, why come forward? She's also destroying yeah. his life, his yeah. wife's mm -hmm. lives, his children's yeah. lives, mm -hmm. his Daughters. career. Mm -hmm. I mean, why didn't she come out sooner if she's telling the truth? Why didn't she come out when he was going into the Bush White House? Why didn't she come out when he's been a federal judge exactly. for over a decade? Why not have a thorough investigation why instead not? of just the two of them he said she said? Because it doesn't matter. It does not matter what everyone else has to say. This is what happened, though, with Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill. The FBI investigated. It took three days. Done. Why not now? Well, this is not the same. This is a high school kid. I mean, it's not Anita Hill story. So this wasn't your average group of Republican women. So we'll get to what's wrong with this panel and what CNN wasn't telling you about this panel and why it was incredibly misleading in a moment. But first of all, I've got to touch on the comments here. The sheer level of stupidity I saw 
almost made my head explode because that one woman said, oh, well, you know, he was a 17-year-old boy. Tell me what boy hasn't done this in high school. Please, I would like to know. What are you saying? Do you even hear yourself? I take it most 17-year-old boys have not tried to rape girls. I mean, like, who thinks like this? What type of fucked up person, how skewed does your worldview have to be to think that this is normal behavior? It's not normal behavior. And you shouldn't accept it as normal, even if that were in fact the case. So, getting past the stupidity, what was it about this panel that CNN did not bother telling you? Well, as author James Surowiecki points out on Twitter, CNN's framing of this segment was really irresponsible. This purported to be a focus group that would show what Republican women think of Kavanaugh now. So, each woman is identified as a Republican voter. But, in fact, the two women who dominated the discussion are not average voters. They're better described as GOP political operatives. The woman in the white sweater, Lourdes Castillo de la Peña, has served on the Republican National Senatorial Committee and hosted a $1,000 per plate fundraiser for Ted Cruz's presidential campaign at her home. Gina Sosa, who made the now infamous comment about how all 17-year-old boys have done something like this, was a congressional candidate in the GOP primary this year. Angela Vasquez is a community council member in Kendall in Dade County. In other words, these were not GOP voters plucked off the street. They were in large part members of the GOP establishment in Miami-Dade. It's also odd to assemble a panel of largely Latina women in which most, all perhaps, of all the women are Cuban-Americans who are far more conservative and more supportive of Trump than Latinx voters generally and than Latinx Republicans specifically. In effect, the focus group was stacked to produce the result it got. Lockstep support for Trump's nominee and unswerving fealty to the conservative line. What's surprising about that segment is not that those women said what they said. They were, in effect, handpicked to offer that line. What's surprising is that CNN thought this was a good way to show what average GOP women voters think. So the fact that they didn't disclose this is troubling. The fact that they framed this as a panel of Republican women is troubling. If you're going to have GOP operatives, then you have to be upfront with people and say, these are GOP operatives. You know, they tow the party line. Some of them ran for Congress or state legislature or city council under the Republican Party. And, you know, their views are going to be probably biased in favor of the Republican Party, even if, you know, they are, they might be in lockstep with average Republican voters. Now, people might question, does it really matter? Because odds are these GOP operatives are probably going to say the same thing that average Republican women voters would say anyway. Well, it kind of does matter, because he goes on to follow up the statement saying, The obvious response to this criticism is, a group of average Republican women voters would have answered the same way, but this misunderstands why this particular CNN segment attracted so much attention. What was distinctive about these women, and the reason conservative media trumpeted what they said, wasn't that they thought Kavanaugh should be confirmed. Had they said something like, this is a case of he said, she said, and I don't have enough evidence either way to reject him, or in the absence of other witnesses, I'm inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt. The segment wouldn't have attracted much attention. Instead, these women first said they believed Kavanaugh without reservation, and then effectively said even if he did do it, it wasn't a big deal, and in fact, was the kind of thing you'd expect a 17-year-old boy to do. 
what they were doing was rejecting the entire idea that sexual assault should disqualify someone from being on the Supreme Court. That's why everyone on the left and the right retweeted that interview, and they were, in effect, telling GOP senators, no matter what Ford says, we'll support you when you vote to confirm him. Those aren't things a panel of average Republican women voters from across the country would necessarily have said, but they are things that a panel of hardcore conservatives from Miami-Dade were going to say, which is why CNN's decision to assemble that panel is so weird. So there you have it. CNN will do something like this, and then Republicans are still going to claim that mainstream news has a liberal bias, and that there's this anti-conservative bias. This segment is essentially propaganda at the behest of Kavanaugh and the GOP. But yet, they're still going to turn around and play the victim, and claim that, you know, they're always being attacked arbitrarily by mainstream news, when... Mainstream media is providing them with cover by having GOP operatives on to talk about Kavanaugh in a segment when they claimed that they were assessing Republican women, average Republican women specifically. It's disingenuous, and for CNN to not point this out is very irresponsible, because if you're a journalist, your goal is to inform people, and if you are purporting to inform them about the viewpoint of average Republican women, then you need to either tell your viewers who you're having on, or get actual Republican women on. I'm sure you could have found someone easily to come on and be on TV, so why they chose not to have actual average Republican women, uh, I don't get it, but I mean, you should have at least, at a minimum, disclosed the fact that you were talking to GOP operatives and they dominated the conversation, but CNN didn't do that. I mean, this is kind of what we've come to expect from cable news, irresponsible journalism that doesn't tell you everything you need to know. I've talked about just how backwards Donald Trump's priorities are when it comes to policy before, but we recently got a story that truly demonstrates not just how backwards he is in terms of what he should be prioritizing, but how morally depraved this individual is. So as Caitlin Dixon of Yahoo News reports, the Department of Health and Human Services is diverting millions of dollars in funding from a number of programs, including the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the National Institutes of Health to pay for housing for the growing population of detained immigrant children. In a letter sent to Senator Patty Murray of Washington and obtained by Yahoo News, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar outlined his plan to reallocate up to $266 million in funding for the current fiscal year which ends on September 30th to the Unaccompanied Alien Children Program in the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Nearly $80 million of that money will come from other refugee support programs within ORR, which have seen their needs significantly diminished as the Trump administration makes drastic cuts to the annual refugee numbers. The rest is being taken from other programs, including $16.7 million from Head Start, $5.7 million from from the Ryan White HIV AIDS program and $13.3 million from the National Cancer Institute. Money is also being diverted from programs dedicated to mental and maternal health, women's shelters, and substance abuse. According to data from the Office of Refugee Resettlement, a 
obtained by Yahoo News, there were 13,312 immigrant children in federal custody as of Wednesday, September 19th, with ORR's existing facilities at 92% capacity. This is hardly the first time HHS has had to move money around to accommodate an influx of unaccompanied immigrant children in its care. But although the number of unaccompanied immigrant children apprehended along the border in the U.S. in fiscal year 2018 is on track to surpass that of the previous year, the rate is still well below those seen in 2014, when the flow of unaccompanied children across the border reached crisis-level proportions or during the subsequent peak in 2016. And while the family separation policy has contributed to the demand for additional beds, the main reason is that children are spending more time in custody before they are released to a sponsor or returned home. So let's just pause for a moment and reflect on this administration's priorities when it comes to cancer research, an HIV AIDS program, mental and maternal health, funding for the uh, Center for Disease Control and Head Start. Those are all less important than having more detention centers for immigrant children that this administration is detaining. I don't really think I have to say much about this. I think the substance of the story speaks for itself. This is what this administration is doing. Diverting something as crucial as cancer research. Money that's needed for that to his xenophobic immigration policies. I honestly don't know what to say. This is morally reprehensible. Donald Trump is morally bankrupt. And he's choosing to prioritize punishing immigrant children instead of using that money for women's shelters and cancer research and Head Start. So in other words, he cares more about punishing immigrant children than helping Americans. That's his priority. I don't even know what to say about that. I honestly don't know what to say. There's no meaningful response I can give you to supplement this information. It speaks for itself. This is a morally depraved, disgusting individual who would care more about building more immigrant detention centers than these things. Now, another component to this story, not to sound too redundant because I always do this, but I think it's important, nobody's talking about this. Cable News has not talked about how this administration is diverting funds needed for cancer research and Head Start to building more immigrant detention Shelters. Not being talked about. This should be a national story that dominates the headlines, but it's not being talked about. In fact, I found this in a subreddit, buried, like not even at the top of Reddit, you know, in a subreddit, not even at the top of that particular subreddit. That's how little people know about this. And it's just, it's so frustrating because this is one of the more disgusting things that he's done. This is a substantive critique that you can lob against this administration and for a media that's always criticizing Donald Trump. This is something that you can criticize him for that's actually substantive, that's meaningful, that everyone would agree with you on. But instead, we're not we're not hearing anything about this. It may not be a very flashy headline or, you know, sensationalist story. But it's important. It really speaks to the moral depravity of this administration and how Donald Trump's priorities are completely ass backwards. But, you know, I think few people will, will learn about this. And it's so 
fundamentally important because this shows that Donald Trump dis doesn't give a damn about the American people. He cares more about punishing immigrant children than he cares about you. CNN's Allison Camerata hosted a panel of female Trump supporters, and her goal with this segment was to gauge just how satisfied they were with Donald Trump two years into his presidency. And half of the voters here say that they regret voting for Donald Trump, and the other half say that they do not regret voting for Donald Trump, and in fact, intend on voting Republican in the midterms this year. So we got some really insightful anecdotes here that I think yield some good information about voters, specifically the mind of a Trump voter. So I wanted to share this with you because I do have some things to say that I think will be helpful going forward for progressives. Is any part of your vote in the midterm going to send a message, you hope, to President Trump? Do you feel differently about your vote today for him? Oh, I definitely feel different about my vote for him. You know, he, um, I voted my Christian values. I was hoping he would probably be more of the candidate that would deliver that for me. And I still maintain hope that his Supreme Court picks are going to have made voting for him worth it for me. I'm standing behind Donald Trump uh, because of his conservative values. You know, uh, having the faith-based uh, uh, community with him is very important to the Latino community. So, yes, I am voting Republican, and I did not register uh, ever until 2015. Is that right? So yes. you never voted until this never. presidential election? No. I felt that, you know, um, our faith-based community um, needed uh, support. And what was it about President Trump that made you think that he had those Christian values? Um, he was actually talking to faith-based communities. For me, for the midterm, um, my message is more to Democrats than Republicans. My local elected officials are the reason for and have, have, are the reason for the deterioration of our community. Uh, it is Democrat decision-making that has widened the divide between the haves and the have-nots. So you're basically and sending the, a message to your local politics. Exactly, because the local politics are why I am Republican today. The latest poll numbers show that only 36% of the country approves of the job that he's doing. With women, it's lower. Only 29% of women approve, 65% disapprove. Why do you think that is, Allie? Well, it starts with talking about women's facelifts, I think. Um, I, it's, it's disrespectful. I think the majority of women, I don't think that they see him as a respectful, pro-woman kind of man, especially uh, people my age. In my age demographic, it's a huge deal that he's not supportive of um, easily accessible women's health care um, in terms of Planned Parenthood. They feel like they're losing the right to birth control, um, pap smears, um, abortions. So, Allie, you're not happy that you voted. Is that fair? Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, you're it's not fair to say that, that I'm not. Yeah, yeah. Part of the reason I voted for him was because I thought he was going to be the one of the two candidates to make our national security a high priority and make us safer on our own grounds and our own territory. But when you're making fun of foreign leaders and becoming buddy-buddy with Vladimir Putin, it, it, it shakes me up a little bit. My fear with um, President Trump is that his extramarital affairs 
will make it more of a norm that the children will think this is acceptable behavior and it's not, it's hurtful behavior. The whole Stormy Daniels thing, um, I don't agree, obviously, well, with what has gone on in the past. If I could only vote for a candidate who has been perfect his or her entire life, I could only vote for Jesus Christ. Well, so that was interesting, albeit soul crushing, right? Because it's clear that I don't know anything policy-wise would win these voters over. Because one of the main reasons why some of these women say that they support Donald Trump is based on religiosity, which is sad. So one woman said, I voted in my Christian values, and she's hoping that, you know, even if Donald Trump isn't necessarily a living embodiment of Jesus Christ, <laughs> that, you know, her vote for him will pay off when it comes to his Supreme Court appointments. Um, another woman said, having the faith-based community with him is very important to the Latino community, and she literally registered to vote in 2015 because of Donald Trump. Wasn't George Bush, who was probably the most openly religious candidate in modern history that made her register, it was Donald Trump of all people, specifically because he talked to faith-based communities. And then one woman alluded to democratic policies that exacerbated income and wealth inequality, which was weird to me because even if it's true that Democrats also contribute to that, of course, it's Republicans that are doing everything they can to speed up and accelerate that gap that's increasing between, you know, the wealthy and the poor. So that was weird. Additionally, um... One girl said that she regrets voting for him uh, because she essentially, according to her, she voted because she thought Donald Trump can protect national security more so than Hillary Clinton. In other words, she voted based on fear because she was fearful of a terrorist attack and she wanted someone who would protect us. And she thought Donald Trump was the stronger candidate on national security. And then one lady said this, which just kind of made my head explode. If I could only vote for a candidate who has been perfect his or her entire life, I could only vote for Jesus Christ. In other words, she'll vote for someone who's flawed, but to her, the bar for who's flawed and how flawed a candidate has to be before she says no is pretty low. So I had some general takeaways that we're kind of depressing. So the first takeaway is that religious pandering really, really works. I mean, as someone who was raised in the church and grew up religious, it was very clear that Donald Trump didn't give a shit about religion. He was pandering. But nonetheless, they still bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. They bought it. Additionally, fear-mongering works very well. If you talk about national security and you repeat that and repeat that and you make people fear fearful literally for their lives, then you can dupe voters into voting for you. So religiosity and fear seem to be driving factors for these types of voters. In other words, religious pandering and fear-mongering, that's really all Republicans have to do to win. Now, this isn't surprising because it's a strategy that Republicans execute because it works, right? But they're kind of confirming it here that yes, religious pandering and fear-mongering still works. So the question is, as progressives trying to defeat Republicans, how do we respond 
to that? How do we get them to not be fearful about national security? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. How do we get them to stop putting so much into religiosity and convince them that that shouldn't be what they base their vote on? I don't know. These are voters that don't seemingly care about policy, so I don't know how you win them over. I don't know if they're a lost cause, but nonetheless, this was interesting because they kind of confirm that Republican strategy of fear-mongering and pandering to their religion, when most of these politicians probably don't give a shit about religion, it still works really well for them. And what's evident is that Republicans have found their go-to strategy that's effective for the most part on a certain portion of voters, but Democrats have not found their go-to strategy. And I think their strategy is to be super populist, excite your base, get out the vote. But they, they don't they don't know that they have to do that. They don't know what they have to do. Republicans know exactly what they have to do to maintain their base of faithful voters. Democrats have no fucking idea how to get out their vote on their own side. So, you know, I don't have a precise, clean takeaway from this event, or from this panel, rather, but it certainly is interesting to see how these voters think and what they base their votes on. Because as someone who focuses on policy through and through and that's really the only thing i care about seeing them put so much weight into religion and fear is kind of disheartening i'll be honest a senior state department official named brian hook recently made a chilling speech at the hudson institute where he essentially made the case for regime change in iran someone from trump's administration making the case for regime change now, he spoke out against the Iran nuclear deal. He advocated for additional sanctions that specifically hurt the people of Iran and fosters instability. And Medea Benjamin of Code Pink heard what he said, and she decided to storm the stage in order to call him out and call out this administration for their warmongering. And she did not leave that stage until they literally carried her off and that was by far one of the most courageous things i have ever seen take a look that is the most ridiculous thing i have seen the world community wants to keep the iran nuclear deal our allies are the, the germans the french the british they want to keep in this deal the world community wants to keep the deal let's talk about normal countries let's talk about saudi arabia is that who our allies are listen they are the biggest threat to the world community and let's talk you're hurting me you're actually hurting me I want to I want to ask do you think these sanctions are hurting the regime or are they hurting the Iranian people they're hurting the Iranian people you are making a case for war with Iran how did the war with the Iraq turn out you're doing exactly the same thing we did in the case of Iraq we don't want another war in the Middle East. Ma'am, ma you want to go outside and give How a speech? How does Iraq turn out? Do How did you Libya turn out? We that. have the people can, of Syria suffering. And how dare you bring up the issue of Yemen? It's the Saudi bombing that is killing most people in Yemen. So let's get real. No more war. Peace with Iran. I think she had her coffee this morning. That was 
remarkable, and you've got to give Medea credit. She's one of the only people in the country speaking out to this degree and challenging the status quo when it comes to war, and she is bold. They had to carry her out. She's a very tiny woman, and you have four men carrying her out, and with everything in her, she is making her case. As they are carrying her out, she's still yelling. I mean, if there's anyone that I look up to in this country, she's at the top of my list, because that is just absolutely... That's bravery right there. That's what you call speaking truth to power. And I don't know if you missed it towards the end there, but they actually made fun of her. Brian said, oh, I think she had her coffee this morning. You're laughing off the substance of what she said. I mean, these people are absolutely despicable. And at the UN, I don't know if you caught it, but Donald Trump subtly suggested that regime change in Iran, you know, maybe that's not such a bad thing. Now, he didn't explicitly say that, but slowly but surely, what you see is people within this administration building their case for war with Iran. I mean, Rudy Giuliani recently said that sanctions are intended to foster instability in hopes that there's going to be a regime change one day in, in hopes that they can put someone else in charge of Iran. So this is all incredibly disturbing, and Medea did the right thing. And she talked about the need for the Iran nuclear deal. It's a peace deal. It stops them from getting a nuclear bomb. But Donald Trump decided to unilaterally withdraw from that. Uh, she talked about how harmful the sanctions are on the Iranian people. They're trying to hurt the government, but really, this is hurting the Iranian people. But that's the goal. They want political unrest and instability, so that way this would potentially catalyze regime change. It's what they've been wanting. Uh, she talked about Saudi Arabia and the genocide that they're committing in Yemen. She said that we are making the same mistake all over again. We did this in Iraq, and if we do it in Iran, are we going to really expect better results? So, this is such an important moment, but there was almost no coverage in the mainstream media. I mean, the whole point of protests is to draw attention to a particular political cause or political issue. And if the media isn't going to pay individuals like Medea attention, then the protest isn't going to be as effective. So these protests are intended to get attention and the media isn't doing their job in covering these types of things. She's drawing attention to a very important point about how the Trump administration is currently trying to build the case against Iran in hopes of regime change one day. One day soon, in the near future. And nobody's talking about it. So I saw this and I just, I mean, wow. Medea has been at this for decades now. And she is relentless. I mean, I don't know that I would have the courage that she had to continue yelling and making your point in a room full of people who don't care what you have to say, who are hostile towards your ideas. I mean, kudos to her. This was really brave. Um, hopefully, people will follow her lead and be more direct in confronting public officials who are warmongering, because this is completely unacceptable. And warmongering has become so common that, you know, someone from the Trump's administration or really any administration will say something hawkish and it'll just go over our heads because we're so used to it. We're so desensitized to it, but we can never normalize warmongering and hawkish behavior. We can't. Even if we're bombarded with, you know, this type of rhetoric, 
we always have to call it out and not accept it as normal. And Maria is doing exactly what she should be doing and what I hope others will be inspired to do after seeing this. In what may be the dumbest segment in the history of cable news, Jesse Waters of Fox News brought on the conservative duo collectively known as Dilk or Diamond and Silk, and he asked them what they thought about the revelation that Bert and Ernie <laughs> of Sesame Street might be gay. Oh, <laughs> so stupid and um they made it clear that they were not okay with the prospect <laughs> they made it clear that they're not okay with the prospect of these two of these two puppets <laughs> being gay big controversy surrounding bert and ernie i can't believe i'm doing this segment but i am um i, I guess there's been rumors that bert and ernie were gay for a very long time and the writer came out with a statement, and he said this, I always felt that without a huge agenda, when I was writing Bert and Ernie, they were gay. I didn't have any other way to contextualize them. The other thing was, more than one person referred to Arnie and I as Bert and Ernie. I guess Arnie is his partner. And so Sesame Street had to come out and respond to this, and this is what Sesame Street said. Sesame Street has always stood for inclusion and acceptance. It's a place where people of all cultures and backgrounds are welcome. Bert and Ernie were created to be best friends and to teach young children that people can get along with those who are very different from themselves. I never wow. even thought about whether Bert and Ernie were gay, but I guess this is a big story. Uh, Diamond and Silk, what's your uh, feeling about Bert and Ernie? Well, listen, we grew up watching Sesame Street. And so we thought one was the father, one was the son. We didn't care less. Listen, I don't like the fact that they're trying to over-sexualize our cartoons. That's right. Leave that to, to, to other people. Let children be young and just... just be children. Yeah, and, and stop trying to over-sexualize and identify and, yeah. and this person is this sexual orientation and that person is that sexual orientation. Let's leave it to the children's imagination and keep it moving. And I do know one thing, though. I, I do know one thing. Oscar the Grouch, definitely a liberal. <laughs> okay. Ladies, thank you very much. Okay. Whew. I don't know why I'm laughing so hard at this. <laughs> so I don't know their names because Jesse Waters never gives them enough time to distinguish which one is Diamond and which one is Silk. So we'll go with the nicknames. Last time, this is Dilk 1 and this is Dilk 2. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is the dumbest thing I've ever talked about. Um, okay, so trying to address the substance here. Dilk1 said, I don't like the fact that they're trying to over-sexualize our cartoons, and she made this point multiple times. Now, embedded in that statement is the assumption that homosexuality equals promiscuity. But if Bert and Ernie are simply living together as a couple, that fact alone doesn't constitute an over-sexualization of Bert and Ernie, or sexualization at all, frankly speaking. And someone who's inclined to believe that that is in fact the case is inadvertently revealing their own prejudice against gay people. Because what are some of the most prominent stereotypes against gay people? They're perverted. You know, they're, uh, they're 
promiscuous, everything they do is hypersexual, you know, and they're always flaunting their sexuality. So she believes this stereotype presumably because she's ignorant and doesn't know a gay person. So, of course, simply making Bert and Ernie gay, the mere fact that they are a homosexual couple doesn't over-sexualize them. The only way that you can sexualize these characters is if they were blowing each other on the screen. But obviously, that's not the case. It's a fact that gay people exist, and the people against Bert and Ernie being gay, even though it's stupid, even though it's just puppets, they're revealing their agenda, and that agenda is to dehumanize and fight against the normalization of homosexuality because they don't believe that they're morally equal, and probably because they believe they should be legally inferior as well, seeing that Diamond and Silk are Republican Party propagandists. And again, going back to this comment that making them gay would somehow sexualize them, well, let's apply that. Let's say that instead of them being gay, these two are gay, and that Diamond and Silk are a lesbian couple. Well, just the mere fact that they're lesbians, would that over-sexualize them and their political commentary? Of course not. Of course not. It's the most benign thing in the world. But nonetheless, since in their minds, homosexuality equals bad, well, they think that the mere fact that they're gay is over-sexualization because, of course, they're biased against gay people. Now, I do want to get to something that Dilk too said because it was just kind of thrown in there. She said, leave Bert and Ernie alone. Now, what's weird is that she's saying this to the writer of Bert and Ernie, who I'm assuming had a part in creating these characters, but this is also wrong because to assert that they should be left alone implies that some harm is being done to these characters, and to her, for them to be gay ruins them in her mind, and this likely stems from her belief that homosexuality is this corrupting influence, which is a view that stems from many religious organizations, but it's inherently bigoted, and if we're supposed to believe that these characters would be ruined for Dilk too if they are in fact gay, then she's kind of inadvertently revealing that she has this visceral reaction to homosexuality. And if you have this visceral reaction, then an individual from the community of the facts over feelings people is putting feelings over facts in this situation. And it's a fact that gay people exist and they in no way, shape, or form negatively impact the lives of heterosexual individuals. But with that being said, I honestly can't believe that I've talked about Sesame Street for this long on The Humanist Report. This is probably a new low for the show, but, you know, since Fox News brought it up um, and friends of the show Diamond and Silk talked about it, I felt the need that to discuss this because these types of things, even though they may seem, you know, insignificant, they are pretty substantial, right? Because, look, I don't personally know if Bert and Ernie are gay, nor do I really care that much, but if it triggers some conservatives, then damn fucking right, I hope that they are gay. But, I mean, at the end of the day, this kind of just goes to show you that there's this embedded bias in the mainstream media, specifically within conservative circles and mainstream news, that being gay automatically is bad, and the fact that it's news at all really shows that there's still this bias against gay people, because the fact that Bert and Ernie are gay, it shouldn't be news. It, it, just, it should just be a fact, a thing right? Because it doesn't matter whether they're gay. That doesn't change the substance of the show. That shouldn't ruin it for people. Being gay is just a fact of life. And as we normalize homosexuality more and more each year in our society, we're going to see individuals like Diamond and Silk, who are from older generations, try to push back against that and try to fight back. But understand that 
they're losing this battle. And I think that when it comes to homosexuality, the left has absolutely won the culture war. I mean, you, there's no question about that. But now it's just a matter of us winning the legal war. And that's still a battle that we have to fight for. Gays can still be fired just for being gay in more than 20 states, almost half the country, which is completely unacceptable. Trans people are now having to fight for the right to just use the bathroom of the gender that they identify as, which is completely unacceptable. And at the end of the day, even though this may have been a seemingly insignificant segment, there's still biases that we have to call out because these individuals, they have an agenda. They have a conservative right-wing agenda. And this is kind of like subliminal messaging, right? They're trying to hit you with this subtle implication that gays are perverts. And even if that may have not been their intention here, that certainly is what a lot of viewers of Fox News who are older are going to get. So we have to call it out when we see it. And I apologize to my viewers for talking about Bert and Ernie for this long. I, yeah. So after Jake Tapper received a lot of backlash for condescendingly demanding that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez describe exactly how she's going to fund all of her policies that would help the American people, well, one of his colleagues, Chris Saliza, decided to come to his defense and be equally condescending to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and he wrote a quote analysis titled, The $40 trillion question Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez couldn't answer. And in this article, he argues, on Sunday, CNN's Jake Tapper put a very simple question to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. How are you planning to pay for the many and various expensive programs and plans that you are either proposing or support? The New York soon-to-be congresswoman didn't have any answers. Like, none. Ocasio-Cortez is making the case that if government took over more aspects of people's lives currently controlled by private industry, costs would go down on things like health insurance, so the $40 trillion price tag for her programs would be less. But again, this isn't an answer on where the money might come from to pay for them. Let's buy into Ocasio-Cortez's case that costs would shrink if the government, rather than the free market, ran things. Let's even say it would have the costs of the programs that she supports making into law. That's still $20 trillion, which has to come from somewhere, right? Tapper is doing an important public service here. He's highlighting the difference between campaigning and governing. The truth is that as a candidate, you can be for almost anything because you don't have any responsibility. You aren't in charge of managing the federal budget or reducing our deficit and debt obligations. Free stuff sounds great, but free stuff is almost never free. The truth that Ocasio-Cortez doesn't want to acknowledge is that the only or at least the most likely way that she fills the gap between cost savings and the actual cost of the program she's proposing is to raise taxes. Yes, on the wealthy, but also, if we're being honest, on more than just the wealthy. Raising taxes is never popular unless it's someone else's taxes being raised. But if Ocasio-Cortez and Sanders and others believe that they deserve to lead, whether in Congress or in the White House, they need to be candid about both what they are for and how they propose paying for it. As Jake's interview made very, very clear, Ocasio-Cortez isn't there yet. So first of all, let me just ask Chris Saliza why he hasn't written another article asking the senators who just voted to expand the military budget by $17 billion how they're going to pay for that. Where's your outrage there, Chris? 
why aren't you calling them out for being irresponsible and seemingly just increasing the military in a way that's going to increase the deficit? Doesn't that concern you as well? Or is it only policies that save lives that offend you? Because for all of these CNN hosts, if you increase the budget and, you know, increase the deficit to kill people in the Middle East and North Africa, they're okay with that. If you give tax cuts to rich people like Jake Tapper or Chris Eliza, you know, they're not going to press you that hard. They might throw in a question about how you're going to pay for it for a good measure, but they're never going to be as hard on those Republicans as they are on Democrats because they're fighting back against cries from Republicans who cry liberal bias. Now, first of all, he asks the question how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is going to pay for Medicare for all, and the whole premise of this article is that it's impossible. You can't do something like that, even though other countries have figured it out. Well, in the United States, we're unique in that it's impossible to pay for something like Medicare for all. That's the underlying implication of this article. But he contradicts himself because he quite literally comes up with a way to pay for Medicare for all. He states, she is proposing to raise taxes, yes, on the wealthy, but also, if we're being honest, on more than just the wealthy. So if you raise taxes, yes, that would pay for Medicare for all. But his response to that is, well, you don't want to do that because then you're raising taxes on average Americans. And that's just, that's wrong. You don't want to do that because they hate when people raise their taxes. But what's the rest of that argument, Chris? Why don't you fill it out? Because if you're a political analyst, if this is supposedly an analysis, that's how this is branded, then why aren't you telling your readers that on average, people who make less than $200,000 will net save money under a Medicare for All system because if they no longer have to pay their monthly health insurance premiums, well, even if you increase their taxes, they're still going to have more money in their pocket. Why aren't you telling them that? Because you're a hack and you're just writing this article, this quote analysis to attack Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and your agenda is crystal clear. You're a corporatist and all you care about is protecting corporate interests because if... Medicare for all actually did come to fruition if we codify that into law, then what would happen to health insurance companies? They would no longer exist. Medicare for all existentially threatens healthcare providers. So you're doing their bidding. And as a result, you are helping to prop up a status quo that leads to death and bankruptcy. Do you feel good about yourself, Chris? Does that help you sleep at night knowing that you're okay with the system where people lower on the economic scale than you are having to choose to not go to the doctor because they can't afford it or they can't afford the copays? Does that make you feel okay? Probably he doesn't even know what's going on because he's a DC elite and doesn't really know or care about, you know, those that are socioeconomically disadvantaged. But I mean, I want to get to some other arguments here because this is really, really disingenuous. He states here that even if we be extra kind to Ocasio-Cortez and we say that she only needs to come up with $20 trillion, you know, we, we cut that estimate from Jake Tapper, the $40 trillion and half. Well, that's got to come from somewhere, right? Yeah, obviously. You see, we're already spending a metric fuck ton of money on healthcare. We fund programs like Medicare, Medicaid, the Children's Health Insurance Program, the Affordable Care Act, but all of that money currently being spent on those programs, we reallocate that into expanding and improving Medicare, make sure everyone's covered, 
And that's already trillions of dollars that you take from those programs and you divert into a Medicare for all system. But he's not telling you that. And that's something that's common sense, especially if you're a quote analyst. How do you not realize that, of course, if we're already spending money, we take that dollars that we're spending and spend it on Medicare for all. If that's going to be our only healthcare system, if government is the single payer, why would we have other programs like Medicaid? the Affordable Care Act. Of course, we wouldn't have those programs anymore because they would no longer be necessary. And it's a disingenuous argument. He knows about this. This is an individual who is well-versed in politics and policy, and he knows that he is making a disingenuous argument, and he's being intentionally misleading here. He's strategically leaving out that fact that's really important, that we reallocate money that we're already spending on healthcare, and we put that towards Medicare for all, and we just raise the additional revenue needed by raising taxes. A payroll tax a financial transaction tax on Wall Street, a tax on individuals with higher incomes, that would fund Medicare for All. And even if we can't fully fund Medicare for All, then we we put it on the deficit. If deficit spending is going to save lives and you're against that, then you have to admit that the deficit is more important than people's lives to you. That's what you've got to admit. So he also states here, You can be for almost anything because you don't have any responsibility as a candidate. You aren't in charge of managing the federal budget or reducing our deficit and debt obligations. Free stuff sounds great, but free stuff is almost never free. Right, but you see, we're not asking for free stuff. We're asking that the tax dollars, the money we're already spending and giving to the government, actually be used to help us for once. That's part of the social contract. We spend money, we give our tax dollars to the government, and in return, they're supposed to provide us with public goods and services. You know, uh, they give us roads to drive on. There's a military to protect us from external threats. They're supposed to make sure that we don't die if we get sick. They give us health care. But they're not doing that. The government isn't holding up its end of the bargain. So we're just saying the money that we're having taken out of our paychecks every single week, that should be helping us. But it's not currently. It's funding tax cuts for the rich. It's funding wars. So we're not asking for free stuff. We're already paying for it, Chris. That's the problem. We don't like how our money is being spent. So when you frame it as being free or even as an entitlement, that is corporate doublespeak. That's propaganda. And you need to know that you are misleading people. So at the end of the day, the extent to which CNN is going to discredit Medicare for all and quite frankly, smear Ocasio-Cortez as someone who's naive and too young to know what's going on or to govern, they are doing the bidding of health insurers. They're doing the bidding of CNN's advertisers and their political hacks. And your concern trolling here is only delaying a policy that would save lives and stop medical bankruptcies. But these are rich individuals who are oligarchs and elites and they really don't care what average Americans are dealing with. But you can try to fearmonger about taxes going up, but Americans are beginning to wake up to the fact that Medicare for all is the common sense way to go when it comes to healthcare. Because yes, our taxes are going to go up, but we're still going to have more money if we no longer have to pay our monthly health insurance premiums. And guess what? Everyone's covered. Nobody's left out. So the propaganda is going to continue. We're being bombarded with it because corporate oligarchs are seeing that the tide is turning. A majority of Americans, now 70%, support Medicare for all. A majority of Republicans, 51% support Medicare for all. 
So the tide is turning. So they are scrambling to get us to be against a policy that would benefit us. They're scrambling to get us to be against our own best interests. But the American people are waking up and these people are quickly discrediting themselves. And CNN is proving to be the corporate news network in America. So last week, we all saw how Jake Tapper pressed Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to give him a dollar-for-dollar breakdown as to how she's going to fund her Medicare for All policy proposal, and he even laughed in her face after she gave her answer when he didn't think that what she said sufficed. I'm assuming I'm not going to get an answer for the other $38 trillion, but we'll have you back and, and maybe we can go over that. So, I mean, clearly, fiscal responsibility is Jake Tapper's forte. If there's a budget increase, Jake Tapper is going to be the individual that presses politicians to account for each dollar that's being spent and how they came up with that money. So I found a story that is 100% right up Jake Tapper's alley. According to Jeff Stein of the Washington Post, Congress votes 93 to 7 to approve $607 billion military budget, a $17 billion increase, Erica Werner reports. This appears to be the biggest military budget outside the height of the Iraq war. No votes, six conservatives, Paul, Toomey, Sass, Lee, Flake, and Purdue, and Senator Bernie Sanders. So there were only six no votes. In other words, the overwhelming majority of the Senate seemingly pulled $17 billion out of thin air. And since Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is someone who's always asked this question about her policy proposals, she asked, but how do we pay for it? Essentially mocking the question people like Jake Tapper always pose to progressives, but never to individuals who vote to increase the military budget every single time. So after seeing this news, I'm assuming that Jake Tapper was seething with rage. I'm sure he couldn't wait to get back to his show on CNN and ask someone who voted for this how the hell they're going to pay for that $17 billion increase. So this is what he had to say about that. Sorry about that. That is not the video. Um, okay, this must be it. This is what Jake Tapper had to say about that. Okay, so I am having trouble finding the video. Let me go through my files. Oh, right. That's because Jake Tapper hasn't said anything about this. Are you even surprised? So when it comes to Medicare for all, Jake Tapper is going to press you and make sure that you can explain exactly how you're going to pay for Medicare for all down to the penny. But when it comes to $17 billion for death and destruction, Jake Tapper is silent. What happened? I thought you said you cared about fiscal responsibility. In fact, Last year, when Republicans made it painfully obvious that they never cared about the deficit when they voted to give trillions of dollars in tax cuts to the rich, this is what Jake Tapper had to say about that. I'm sorry if the Republicans were being insincere about their deficit concerns. I wasn't, however, and I will continue to cover the issue regardless of which party is driving the debt. Well, now we have an instance where members of both parties are increasing the debt because clearly... They haven't stated exactly where that $17 billion is going to come from. Are they cutting other programs? Where is that going to come from? How are you going to pay for this military increase? So how is this not something that Jake Tapper is concerned with when he continuously tries to convince us that this is his number one issue? And it's not like he's unaware of this irresponsible increase in spending because when you go back to that tweet I showed you from Jeff Stein, 
Jake Tapper actually saw it. And how do I know that he saw it? Well, because he retweeted it. But you might say, well, Mike, maybe he's not aware of this double standard that exists where progressives are always asked how they're going to pay for policies that help people, and other politicians are never asked how they're going to pay for policies that kill people. But I doubt that as well, because going back to the second tweet that I showed you from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez pointing out this double standard, essentially mocking Jake Tapper, well, he retweeted that as well. So my question is, if you're aware of the increase, you're aware of the double standard and what people are saying about you, why haven't you spoken out against this? Where's the outrage? You were incredibly outraged at the fact and laughed in her face when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez couldn't sufficiently, in your opinion, explain how we're going to pay for Medicare for all, a policy that would literally save lives. But here you have most senators spending an additional $17 billion to murder people in the Middle East and North Africa, and you don't give a shit about that, Jake. Where's your outrage? So, we know that you're full of shit. We know you're only concern trolling for the sake of concern trolling. So, if you truly care about your credibility and want to protect your name, Jake Tapper, there's a couple of things that you can do. You can either, A, stop holding progressives to a different standard than other politicians, treat everyone equally, or B, ask every single politician the same exact question for any policy that they propose. But we know that you're not going to do that because you're hired by CNN, the corporate news network who gets lots and lots of advertiser dollars from health insurers and big pharma. And if you weren't going hard on politicians who support Medicare for all, then those advertisers might pull their dollars from your network. And as a result, CNN might not be too happy with you. So, I mean, come on. Where's Jake Tapper? Where's anyone else? Where's Chuck Todd who concern trolled last year? who was berating Jeff Merkley for supporting Medicare for All. Where are all of these cable news pundits who always concern troll over the cost of Medicare for All now? Why aren't they speaking out against this money that was seemingly pulled out of nowhere? Because they don't give a damn about the substance. If you're going to spend money on killing people, that's A-OK. If you're going to spend money on helping American citizens... You better come up with a plan to pay for that. Every single cent has to be funded. It's the biggest double standard, I think, in this day and age in American politics. And it makes me so angry, so angry, that we don't see people like Jake Tapper holding politicians to the same standard as progressives. We have to come up with a dollar-for-dollar accounting of every single policy we want. But other politicians, they can cut taxes for the rich to the tune of trillions. They can increase the military budget every time there's a vote on the military budget. And there's, there's absolutely crickets. And it's so fucking angering. It's so angering. This is why people don't trust corporate news. Because we know you have a corporate agenda. And it's not subtle. You're not even trying to hide it. You're openly flaunting your bias and a hatred of progressives. But we're on to you. And each time you do it, we're going to call you out. And as a result, your credibility will take a hit because your bias is showing and you're, you're not even trying to hide it. So fuck people who concern troll over a policy that would save lives. Like seriously, these people are the scum of the earth. Disgusting. Last week, I gave Bill Maher credit for giving Democrats actually solid advice. He told them to stop running away from socialism. 
And this week, what little credit I gave him last week, I'm going to now have to take back because he attacked socialism in the latest episode of his show. Unbelievable. So, during an overtime segment, him and a panelist he had on from the Washington Post named Catherine Rample did the laziest, hackiest attack on Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. She brought up the bill casually, attacked it, and did Bill Maher call her out for attacking it? Well, of course not. Why would he? He agreed with her. And there was also other progressive individuals there that I would have expected to call her out, and... They sat idly by as she attacked this bill and as Bill Maher attacked this bill. So this made me incredibly angry. So let's go ahead and watch it. And then I'll tell you what I found particularly aggravating when we come back. Remember what Trump's health care plan was when he was running? Something terrific. That was, yeah. we're going to replace something to, that he, that he dined on that for six months. And then he said, I'm going to give you health care that's better better, cheaper, and covers everybody, everybody. Do, but very quickly. But is Trump your example? I mean, no, that's no. what I'm saying. I'm just I saying. Don't, well, the he understood well, that that's what people we're, want. Exactly. You're right. And they vote for that's what they the want. That's the main thing. I, I think the difference is that, that once we say it, we're actually smart, we're not stupid, and, and we will actually work to try to get people those things. We'll fail at some of it, but at least the Democrats have got to start aspiring to yes, something you're, you're, and having a spine to do it. You're never going to win if one side plays by rules and the other side... I don't think that means noted. you should give up on having serious ideas that can be executed. I that's agree with that, that completely. But they do have that. It's just getting into no, office to don't. execute. Well, and that's, the Democrats and that's what Trump they did. Don't. The Bill, Democrats have no serious ideas? Uh, when it comes to things like how Medicare for all would work, for example, right, yes, if you no. look at Bernie's math, no, it made no sense. I agree. Right? Like one, it, yes. it made no sense. And yeah, the idea we're that liberal that arts was... majors. Just we don't know math. That's okay. We get somebody. All right. Let me get to a few other questions. So I think what made me especially angry was that you had two well-respected, prominent progressives on the panel, Michael Moore and Tom Hardman, and they didn't push back at all. She did the laziest attack ever on Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. She said, well, if you look at Bernie's math, it made no sense. And rather than just trying to push the envelope there a little bit further and see what she meant by that, Bill Maher just said, I agree. Now, first of all, I don't agree, or I don't believe, rather, that you agree with her, Bill, because nobody believes that you actually dived into the details and dissected Bernie Sanders' bill. You just agreed with her so you can appear neutral, and as one of those reasonable individuals that's willing to attack your own side, but that was bullshit. She needs to be pressured to explain specifically where the math doesn't make sense. Just saying the math doesn't make sense, that doesn't mean anything. That's lazy. Get her to explain her position. But nobody did. Tom Hartman, who is a very well-respected progressive, said nothing. Michael Moore, what did he do? Well, he actually said, we're, you know, we're liberal arts majors. We don't, we don't know math. Now, I get that he was joking and he was trying to be self-deprecating there and whatnot, but we do know math. And her response to Michael Moore after he said that was, find some economists. Right, we do have economists. Bernie Sanders is working with Stephanie Kelton, someone who is very well-versed in modern monetary theory. I mean, I don't understand how so many progressives 
can hear someone say that Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All math doesn't make sense and just let her get away with that. In actuality, the math doesn't make sense when it comes to our current private-run system because we pay more than other countries in the developed world, and guess what? We get worse results. So the question is, why was there zero pushback? Why? Tom Hartman supports Medicare for All. Why didn't you speak up, Tom? Michael Moore created a documentary that got me to be an ardent Medicare for All supporter. I mean, I was always in favor of single payer, but when I saw Michael Moore's documentary, Sicko, I kind of became radicalized in a way where not having Medicare for All was unacceptable and anyone who was against it was immoral. And the individual who did an entire fucking documentary on how broken our healthcare system is didn't even have a response. And I get that she just brought up Medicare for All casually, you know, and they all kind of laughed it off and whatnot, but this is no laughing matter. People are literally dying and going bankrupt, and they're not going to the doctor because they don't have health insurance in this country. This is a very serious issue. So when people make very large claims like that, you have to force them to back it up with evidence. She's asserting a claim now you make her prove her claim. You don't get to just say the math doesn't make sense. Well, what about it doesn't make sense? What specifically makes no sense about it? What don't you like? You force people like this to prove their point because had she gone just a little bit further, it would have been evident that she's full of shit. But since she said that and since Bill agreed with her, the audience probably is like, oh, okay, I guess the math doesn't make sense. Maybe I shouldn't be in favor of Medicare for all. I mean, this is a liberal show, and they're attacking something that 70% of the country supports. Now, 51% of Republicans support Medicare for All. When we have all the momentum in the world, you're attacking it. And we have two progressives, Michael Moore and Tom Hartman, sitting there with their tails between their legs, not saying shit, as this propagandist attacks Medicare for All. Unfucking believable well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in if you've made it this far in the program. As usual, I cannot end the show without thanking all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors for helping the show not just to survive, but thrive as well. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I will see you all next week. And a lot of you have requested, by the way, that we get the show on Spotify. I've been working to do that, but it is relatively difficult, but I will continue to do that. I may have to switch a distributor. Currently, we're using SoundCloud to get the podcast up on iTunes, but we'll see. I am looking into it and looking into expanding the show, particularly for our audio listeners who have asked me countless times to get the show on different platforms. So I am definitely trying to do that. So anyway, thank you all so much. I will see you next week. Take care. Take care.